And we have to realize that Trump's rallies, they are radicalization events, and they've been like that for some years. So Trump uses this rally, this is why journalists have to be very careful the way they cover them, to radicalize people. And so you have extremists like the Proud Boys there, and their purpose is to create you know, more bodies for the cause. And that's how you also got to January 6th. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a historian who specializes in authoritarianism and propaganda. We had her on the show earlier this year, and I invited her back to get her take on how extremist groups and the former president himself are adapting to the prosecutions of the January 6th insurrectionists. Ruth, welcome back to Burn the Boats. Thank you. Pleased to be here. You remarked in a recent interview that Although the number of hate groups in America may be declining, part of the reason is that they're consolidating. And in fact, membership in groups like the Proud Boys, well, the Proud Boys in particular, the group designated by our closest ally, Canada, as a terrorist entity, that membership is surging. And even more alarming is the way they are mainstreaming and putting forth political candidates, finding support among Republicans who are already elected. Can you tell us about, uh, I can't think of a better word than, than the gentrification of these groups from street thugs to respectable members of the community and the historical parallels we should be worried about? Yeah, gentrification is a great word, actually. Um, to start straight off with a historical parallel, you know, I studied Italian fascism starting out and still do. And it's relevant that Italian fascism, I mean, the circumstances were very different after World War I, but it was a decentralized militia movement. <laughs> Lots of veterans, so people who had, you know, weapons experience, and they were taking over town councils and beating up people in small towns and then in cities. They had their, their own kind of leaders, and then they all unified with Mussolini. And once uh, Mussolini got into power, these thugs became his ministers. They became the ruling elite. They cleaned themselves up, but the violence continued under a different auspice. So it's very disturbing to me to see this kind of fusion of some parts of the GOP and extremist groups. And we'll talk about the Proud Boys in a second, but the Oath Keepers, which are not as, they're not surging the way the Proud Boys are, but there are long-standing relationships between state and local GOP lawmakers and groups like the Oath Keepers. And there was a 2022 study, and the Washington Post talked about it, that said one in five state and local GOP lawmakers either had some ties or some sympathies to groups like Three Percenters and Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. So this is, this is a um, meeting of extremists who are being mainstream gentrified uh, with the GOP, which is ready to become more extremist, especially it's been radicalized after January 6th. And the fact that, at least in terms of numbers, they can still be considered marginal groups shouldn't be a great reassurance to us, because if, if we go back to your Italian analog. I mean, when Mussolini marched on Rome with what his 30,000 black shirts, yeah. that did not seem like a massive movement. They were 
massively outnumbered, even by the Italian military, which could have crushed them. But Mussolini ascended. Yeah, and this is, it's important that you, it's very sad and, and important that you bring that up because the king, who was one of the people who invited Mussolini in uh, after the March on Rome, which was a kind of a soft coup, they didn't need to like assault any buildings because they invited out of fear. Um, but the king was the commander in chief. And so he had the entire Italian army and armed forces at his disposal against these 30,000 squadrons, but he didn't do anything. And so that's a very deep lesson that I think about all the time. The typical story of the ascendance of that kind of autocrat, uh, Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, others in, in that same vein, is that they came up from the bottom through the ranks. Our story is a little bit different in that we have this bottom-up grassroots movement, but it's being empowered by a very top-down megaphone and infrastructure, starting with the former president himself. How do you think about those parallels and, and where they where they diverge? In some ways, it's even more dangerous. Oh, totally. In that their guy... Yeah, go ahead. No, it's it's... What can happen is that somebody like, you know, a, a strongman Trump comes in and he, you know, was he a lot of his lines actually like taking back the country come from the Tea Party an already kind of radicalized, you know, wing of the Republican Party. But what Trump did is that he immediately started signaling during his first campaign you know, 2016, he was signaling to all extremists and all racists of every sort in America to create like a big tent for all of them. And so, you know, there's like in February 2016, he was uh, 60, there was a steady 62% of what he was retweeting was white nationalist propaganda. And then the biggest, one of the biggest red flags, but a good thing if you're a neo Nazi or whatever, is when he said he could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone. And he wouldn't lose any followers. Who are the followers who would like it if he shot someone? It's extremists, the same, the Proud Boys. Um, so this is, we've had seven years of this stuff. So now we're in, no wonder they feel very empowered. And so the Proud Boys in particular, they and also Oath Keepers were used not only by Trump, but by GOP lawmakers as security at rallies. And we have to realize that Trump's rallies, but also those of Matt Gates and others, they are radicalization events, and they've been like that for some years. So Trump uses his rallies, that's why journalists have to be very careful the way they cover them, to radicalize people. And so you have, either as uh, attendees or as security, you have extremists like the Proud Boys there, and their purpose is to create you know, more bodies for the cause, and that's how you also got to January 6th. So unfortunately, when you have somebody, you know, the, the sitting president of the United States calling neo-Nazis very fine people, I'm sure they never expected the people, those thugs who went to Charlottesville, never expected a president of the United States to call them very fine people. That is indeed a whole different story um, and much more difficult to defeat in a way. The historical echoes of that are inescapable, but please make them clear to our viewers, when you talk about extremists providing security at radicalization events, I immediately picture 
rallies in Berlin. I immediately picture rallies in Rome in, in the 30s. Can you talk about the Nazis and the fascists' strategy of using security to help accelerate the radicalization among their, their less committed followers? Yeah, I could believe that when I read this, uh, when I learned this, that they'd been using, that Trump and other people had been using them as security because the very first squad, because of the Italian fascists, the black shirts were called the squad dress. And that's because they were different militias, right? Squads. Um, the very first one was created, of course, by Mussolini, and it came out of his bodyguards. So his private security. And then that was, you could say, the core of the whole fascist movement in a way. And so I mentioned this fact that because the, they've become, if you look at this from the perspective of other countries too, these groups have functioned as a de facto kind of paramilitary wing of the Republican Party. Um, and the thing that, you know, because we only have these two giant parties, there are many worlds inside the Republican Party, but I do see all of these people, even before January 6th, I saw them as a de facto paramilitary. And that's the role they played for Trump. And one very interesting fact is in the 21st century, because I study coups and a third of the book is about coups. And I wrote it before January 6th. I didn't expect <laughs> to be applying it here. <laughs> but the new playbook for uh, insurrection seems to be if you can't get the military to collaborate with you, you have an already radicalized civilian army that you have cultivated for years. And then you incite these people to do violence on your behalf. And so it wasn't just Trump who did this. It was Bolsonaro in Brazil. He had a bunch of people. They were camped out for months. And then they went and, you know, did very similar things to January 6th. It was January 8th. But very different outcome. Bolsonaro is now banned from, from politics in Brazil until 2030. And that's actually how you treat these people. You have to, you have to take them out and make them non-viable as candidates. And that starts to kind of, they lose their luster. Well, let's talk more about the military, because you have this incredible piece in The Atlantic. We'll put a, a link to that in the show notes with some really important observations. But at the heart of it is the idea that Pinochet had the military and the power of that behind his tyrannical rule. And that seems to have been a lesson taken to heart by um, by those who study coups and autocracies that if you don't have the military, you're not going to succeed. But there seems to be a, a different mode these days if you can if you can co-opt a political party, if you can do an end run around the military, how do you think about the evolution of the the coup uh, away from a military takeover to something softer and more political? Yeah, it's very, I don't know what will happen in the future with these other kinds of insurrections, but it's very, it's very interesting to me, especially in the United States, which has one of the largest and most powerful militaries in the world. But, you know, all it takes is a few people like chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley, and those around him were extremely 
you know, they're pro-democracy people. They didn't want the constitution to, in their oath, to be violated. And they stood up uh, and, and they blocked this because Trump was trying to cultivate the military. And now we have Michael Flynn who's very, very busy trying to radicalize the military uh, ever since. And he was very involved. He wanted to marshal, you know, to declare martial law and rerun the election under military. So, and there's a part of the military and security apparatus, as it's called in other countries, that is radicalized. And I can only hope that there's been uh, more vetting of extremists in the ranks of all of these bodies than I've heard about publicly, because this is the line. The reason the coup didn't work here is that they didn't have enough people and they didn't have enough weapons. And that's why Marjorie Taylor Greene, when she she gave a speech to the Young Republicans Party, and she said, if I'd organized the coup, there would have been more people and more weapons. I remember that speech and how Easily, it was dismissed by her her colleagues on the right, but just how chilling it was for the rest of us. I think one of the takeaways for me, back to the, the question about the political approach, is that if you can co-opt a, a political party to undermine the Constitution, you don't actually need to fire a shot. You don't need to physically occupy uh, buildings, a Capitol building, for example, with insurrectionists, you just send your party in. Yeah. And then that party, though, is also working very actively. And this just infuriates me as a first generation American. Father was a, you know, an immigrant and a defense subcontractor that uh, Tommy Tuberville is working actively to sabotage the U.S. military by holding up all the promotions and not just sabotaging you know, the military domestically, so they're not as ready for whatever they would need to be doing, but abroad. And so the GOP is, it knows what it's doing. There's a kind of, if you link all the pieces up of what they're doing, there's a design to kind of weaken America from within and degrade its democracy and transform it into something else. You said that if Trump gets back into power, he will never leave. How would that look in practice? How would he either change the law or or deploy his personal militia to never leave? Yeah, I don't know exactly. There are many paths to doing that. You call states of emergency. That's the most likely thing. You invent, which is what we know that various people around him and him hoped would happen, you try and provoke civil unrest, and then you have the, quote, excuse to crack down, or you declare an emergency at the border, excuse for martial, you know, for kind of even like regional martial law, states of emergency, you do things like that. Also, the new way is you, uh, you know, that's electoral autocracy. You try, and he tried this after in November 2020, you don't get rid of elections, but you fix them. You fix the whole system. And it's going on in Wisconsin. It's all, you know, it's being done at the state level so that it's harder for people to vote. And then their vote isn't really counted. And this is why the GOP is always sitting at the feet of Viktor Orban in Hungary, because he has mastered electoral autocracy. So you hold elections, but the opposition can never, even if it all bands together, like the last election in Hungary, they had six parties in the coalition. 
but they couldn't be heard by the media because the media was already domesticated by Orban. And he'd already purged the judiciary and all the electoral machinery. So even if there were challenges to his win, they would not be received. So Trump has learned from his failures. You had 62 judges, many of them appointed by him, who turned back his challenges in 2020. So they're all working. He's got people working in, from various, on various projects to make sure that never happens again. I am sure you're familiar with the Stalin quote, probably apocryphal when he said he doesn't care who votes or how, he just cares who counts the votes and, and how. That seems to be what you're describing. That's why Jack Smith, when he announced the first indictment, he ended his very beautiful speech saying, it's, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, that it, it's not about only the right to vote, it's the right to have your vote counted. When you look at Trump's ability to consolidate all of these extremist organizations and the adjacent organizations to build enough of a coalition to get him just over the line with the Electoral College, do you think that's a strategic strategic positioning on his part, or is it just an instinctive thing when he says, I could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and and I wouldn't be held accountable? Do you think he is consciously talking to those extremists who love that projection of violence, or is, is it just who he is and his aptitude is not thoughtful, it's just natural? It's both. It is who he is, but who he is is one of the most superb propagandists of the 21st century. He's been brilliant at saying the right things to the same to the right people, saying them over and over again. Everything he does is designed to increase his own power and people's devotion to him or threaten people. Also, he's had a campaign, and this is very relevant to increasing extremism, since 2015, he chose, I'm going to, it's a choice he's making, to use his rallies as ways to change how people think about violence. This is part of radicalization over and over again. And, and in my report to the January 6th committee, I had a long list of, it was only a partial list, but it was still a long list of all the rallies and all the quotes. So he would start saying in like 2015, you know, in the old days, you know, you could, people would be carried out on, in a stretcher but you can't do that anymore. Or in 2016, he said, the problem is today people don't want to hurt each other anymore. So it's a problem when people are not violent to each other. So you do this for seven years and you get a meeting of sympathies and meeting of the minds with extremists because extremists believe that only violence is the way to change history. And who is saying that? out loud today, and many of them, Matt Gates recently, he goes to the Iowa State Fair and a- anywhere is radicalization site now. So here's people munching on their corn dogs. They've got your, their four-year-old, you know, in diapers or whatever, kids in diapers, toddlers. And Matt Gates stands there with Trump and says, only force can bring change to Washington, D.C. Okay. What does that mean? It means We're no longer into democratic reform. We're no longer into legislation or elections changing things. It's only force. It's violence. So everyone's there munching on their corn dogs listening to this. And so this is what they're doing. And Trump has created an environment by his own similar 
comments where they feel that this is how to get ahead in the Republican Party is to speak this way. And Trump was at Matt Gates's shoulder when he said that. We did a we did a piece on that yeah. right after it happened. You touch on this in your Atlantic piece when you talk about the longer game, the fact that there is going to be a sunset on on this coalition, on this kind of rhetoric, because quoting you, the Republicans are so out of step with popular desires, things can only go one way for them. My fear is in how long that will take. And I think your conclusion is that if we don't stop them between now and, and 2024, we might not have another chance, but you still hold out enormous hope. The overall tone of your Atlantic piece is is hopeful. You elevate hope as the the antidote to, to Trumpism. How how much assurance should we should we take from that, given that we have one last it feels like one last chance? Yeah. I mean this is the Atlantic piece, you know, the one on Chile, I assume you're you're talking about this took it took a long time for Chileans to get their democracy back but it started with them and this was a horrible you know military dictatorship that tortured thousands of people so it's the worst possible circumstance for people to start coming out into the streets but they did in the early 80s now it took them until the end of the 80s to get their democracy back but they it's it's so inspiring because they had the courage to have, uh, it was called a March for Joy. And the whole message, they had a chance to vote Pinochet out, which we don't have time to explain how that happened, but that was very, it's very rare. So they took it, they took this window of opportunity and it was the power of positive messaging. And they had to convince a population that was terrified. Everybody knew someone who'd been disappeared or tortured. I mean, horrible stuff and was traumatized. So we have a nation that's traumatized and somehow they were able to go out and feel hope and feel optimism. And there were all these messages, TV ads that talked about, you know, joy is coming. The slogan was joy is coming. So it's very moving. That's why I wrote about it. And we're in, we're in far better circumstances. Like we should be out there doing, you know, joy is coming because Trump has also been trying with psychological warfare to make us believe that there is no out, that he's inevitable, that he's the savior. And also just to rob people of their idealism, except if it's attached to him. So there are a lot of lessons to be taken from that. Uh, And one of them is to use the windows that you're given. And we have this time now and we have got to use it. Or I don't know when, I don't know what will happen, but it's not going to be good. I'm very curious about the circumstances, the environment that nurtures and creates autocrats, because a lot of it is cultural. And when I read your profiles of Mussolini, when I read your descriptions of Pinochet, it actually made me think, this is going to sound strange, but I just finished reading uh, another biography of Churchill, uh, The Splendid and the Vile. I suspect you've read it. And the similarities are are striking, except that Churchill had a different cultural environment. He had different schooling, but personality-wise, he had all the hallmarks of, of an autocrat, but it was channeled in a very different way. 
how powerful is culture in shaping those autocratic tendencies versus personal ambition? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And if you look at like the biographies of a lot of these guys, there are lots of differences. But one thing they have in common is they are opportunists and they are they have no moral code. So they take opportunities and they see things for their own self-advancement power and they will do things that other people wouldn't do. And there is no limit or bottom for these people. Now, it's important that many of them were already criminals when they came into power or were running for office. So it's not just Trump who's running for the third time for office, having investigations over his head. Mussolini and Hitler had criminal records. Putin was under investigation. Berlusconi was under investigation, had so many corruption charges against him. So they're already... Stalin was an enforcer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so many of them already were lawless, dangerous criminals. And this is what uh, attracted people to them. But that shows that their personality profile is that there's nothing they won't do. And they also specialize in letting, having people become their worst selves. So they get these elites. I have a piece in my Lucid newsletter about Mark Meadows as an example of a, a political elite who uh, was already very right-wing. He used to go around in 2012 saying, you know, Obama isn't really American. We've got to take back the country. But he was driven to glue himself onto Trump, thinking that he would, by saving Trump, he'd save himself. And by serving Trump, you become debased. The goal of people like Trump or Mussolini is to debase everyone around them and lead them to do things they never thought possible because these guys specialize in um, having a vision of changing the country in ways that make lawlessness the law of the land. And so you end up with genocides, you end up with uh, coups, you know, you end up with torture and it all becomes normalized. So that's when we go back to our theme of extremists, when extremists become normalized, when Proud Boys are sitting on the executive council, Republican executive council in Miami-Dade, those chairs are occupied by people who believe in violence, and they, they kind of corrupt everybody around them. So that's the problem. This is sponsored by Lomi. I have a big family, and that means there's usually a lot of trash left over by the time the week comes to an end. And frankly, I used to feel a bit guilty about this, but then I got a Lomi. Now that I have a Lomi, it's changed the way I think about food waste. Lomi transforms my garbage into gold at the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps to dirt in under four hours. Now, I love composting. Plus, it's made cooking at home even more fun. There's no food rotting in my garbage. And thanks to Lomi, I don't have to take out the trash nearly as often. And it's a hassle-free, mess-free experience. No more leaking bags. Here's something cool, too. I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants, lawn, or garden. That means it's not going to landfills. I get to help the environment and make my life easier. All my food scraps, plant clippings, and even those leftovers I forgot in the back of the fridge go back into my garden, helping me grow more nutritious food right in my backyard. 
food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint. By reducing the amount of food I send to a landfill, I'm helping do my part for the planet while also feeding my garden. Whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash boats and use promo code boats to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash boats and use promo code boats at checkout. Thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode. Hi, Bird the Boats fans. I want to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor for today's show, Fume. I have always struggled with cracking my knuckles. Our sponsor, Fume, helps me fight that bad habit. Fume is on a mission to accelerate humanity's breakup from the bad habits that consume far too many of us. Fume is a natural, diffusive device that uses plants and behavioral science to help you trade out your negative habits for a positive one. Fume is not a vape. It's a non-electronic device designed to transform your negative habits. Instead of pods filled with potentially harmful chemicals like a vape, Fume uses cores infused with plants like peppermint and cinnamon for delicious natural flavors. Fume's new version 2 model is tactile with an adjustable airflow dial and a magnetic end cap so your fingers will always have something to do. I didn't expect much out of Fume when I got it, but I especially love the peppermint pods, and there are other great flavors to choose from. The easiest way to stop a bad habit is to switch to a positive one, and Fume is designed perfectly to do just that. It's Fume's goal to make switching easy and even enjoyable. They have thousands of five-star reviews from people who successfully switched when other solutions just didn't work. Head to tryfume.com and use code BOATS to save 10% off when you get the Journey Pack today. The Journey Pack comes with three unique flavors and the new version 2 Fume to help kickstart your positive habits. That's tryfum.com and use code BOATS to save an additional 10% off on your order today. Hi, Burn the Boats fans. I want to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor for today's show, Roan. Men's closets are long overdue for a radical reinvention, and Roan has stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter collection represents the most comfortable, breathable, and flexible clothes I've ever found. Roan makes it so easy to get ready for any occasion. The commuter collection offers the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, and polos. Roan's comfortable four-way stretch fabric provides breathability and flexibility that leaves you free to enjoy whatever life throws your way, from your commute to work to weekends at the kids' ballgames. Looking good is easy with Roan's wrinkle-release technology, which makes wrinkles magically disappear seriously as you wear the products. It's really that easy. I don't have time between work and family and everything in between to worry about dry cleaning or ironing with Roan, I don't have to. I just wear and go. And I feel great doing it. Even after a long day, Roan feels clean and new and just as comfortable as the moment I put it on. You got to try it out. Head to roan.com slash boats and use promo code boats to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you had to R-H-O-N-E dot com slash boats and use code boats. Trust me, Roan makes choosing what to wear not just easy, but classy and comfortable. That's Roan.com slash boats. I think that's the soft coup I'm most worried about. 
It's the realization among the extremist groups that they can do it the old-fashioned way. They can get enough followers and enough votes through intimidation and gerrymandering uh, that they don't need to carry torches. They can work their way up, starting with school boards and city council seats, and pretty soon you have Oath Keepers running for governor in Pennsylvania and Proud Boy sympathizers in Congress. And look, you don't have to go to jail doing it that way. Yeah, we already have that. Mark Fincham. I know. He, he didn't win, but the, let's, so people are like, well, so what? He didn't win. No, the point is that the guy is a self-proclaimed proud Oath Keeper. And despite that, and I would say because of that, he was nominated to be Secretary of State candidate. So this is, it's already happened. The fact he didn't win is that the voters had uh, decided they didn't want somebody like that, but the party wanted somebody like that. And there are many other, there, the Oath Keepers, there's somebody in Wisconsin who, you know, there's, they're all over the place. So it's already happened that the values of the Republican Party have become the values of autocratic parties. And a lot of people don't want to hear that, or it seems exaggerated, but it it is now a functioning autocratic party with a kind of paramilitary. It's really, it's scary. Do you think they have reached a tipping point? I recall the 2008 postmortem when they looked at how badly they lost and assessed as a party that they needed to create a bigger tent. They needed to be more welcoming. That has been entirely rejected. The strategy is entirely focusing on high turnout among their most radical supporters. But implicit in that strategy is the idea that minoritarian rule will be necessary. If you're not appealing to more voters, you're just radicalizing and intensifying the the participation of your core voters, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to rule the areas where you win. And if you win a presidential, you're going to have to rule the country with a minority of the the public supporting you. At which point is that their only path? Because they have so alienated the middle that they'll never reach majority again. And depending on your answer to that, is the answer the obsolescence of the Republican Party or a party that's so extreme, it looks like Sunni rule in Iraq or something like that? Yeah. So the plan would be that you could say that that some of them don't care if they're out of step with the voters, because the plan of electoral autocracy is that voting doesn't matter as much. Remember, a third, one third of the House is election deniers on the Republican side. One third of sitting people in the House deny elections, which is an act of corruption as well as it's not just that a belief you're choosing to have. It's, it's a, you're saying you're not going to leave office. You don't think that politics should be decided by elections. So the more you invest, and the Republican Party is now a party that is is dependent on lies, on the threat of violence or actual violence and corruption for it. That's what it is now. So if you're like that, you don't care as much about what people, how people are going to vote because your plan is to fix the voting system so you don't have to care. And then you can be as extreme as possible. And one very haunting thing, so Mussolini, he's better than Hitler as a comparison. I don't like to, it's not really a comparison, but as an example, a historical example. Right. 
because he was a, a prime minister of a democracy for three years, and then he had a crisis because he tried he had he ordered a hit job on someone, and he declared dictatorship to save himself because he was going to probably have to go to jail. Very contemporary. In his speech announcing dictatorship, he said, "He said, if fascism has been the, uh, a criminal organization, well, I'm the head of that organization." So he's like, "Yeah, we did it. We did all the violence, and now I'm the head, and that's too bad." So that was an extreme example of saying, "We don't care if you hate me. If you you can't vote me out anymore." And that's dictatorship. Now that's old school. So today, a party has to says, "Yeah, we don't have to care if we're way out of step on abortion or gun rights because we're not interested. We're not going to be depending on voting as much anymore. We're going to be using trickery and violence and all these other things." Well, I live in Ohio, where the Republicans in the House have have mastered the art of of trickery and kicking the can down the road and redrawing maps and defying the state supreme court. And my minoritarian rule is is coming. You mentioned that a third of the House are election deniers. I think a lot of them, and there's documentation for this, will say privately that they know better. My question for you is: Does it even matter? if they know better when you judge their actions by by their outcomes. I'm thinking in particular of Romney's conversations with all of his peers in, in the Senate. These observations are just coming out now. And he claims that almost every one of those Republican senators, bar a couple, absolutely know that what they're doing is, is wrong. But my contention now is that that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter because the end result are these anti-democratic impulses given fuel and taking over their party. Yeah, it doesn't matter. And the same with Tucker Carlson, who, you know, that all that stuff came out where they hate Trump. They, they know very well, you know, what went on in 2020. And they just, it actually just highlights the, the corruption and the, the authoritarian designs that they, all these people had uh, have. So it doesn't matter what they believe because belief is no longer, um, there's no principles or morals anymore. It's just the ends justify the means. And the end is to get to power and not have to leave. And no matter what happens to the country, no matter how many deaths you cause, this, that's all they care about. That's why I'm, another reason I call them an autocratic party. A lot of their grip on power depends on either their followers not caring as well um, or them getting their information from such stovepiped channels that they never hear that Donald Trump or that J.D. Vance compared Donald Trump to, to Hitler. Do you think the problem on the right amongst voters is a lack of information or antipathy towards the left? I think it's uh, a little of both. And it's all part of the same thing because, uh, yeah. r- you know, right-wing propaganda and Fox, including Fox News, of course, and all that ecosystem has been successful in getting people to think that they are existentially threatened by Biden, 
that he's taking their rights away. It's I call this the upside down world of authoritarianism. So it's Biden who's the authoritarian. It's science, scientists who, public health scientists who want us to, to not be diseased, they're the enemy. And so that's part of it, uh, that they've, they've been extraordinarily focused. They've had unified messaging. That's another sign that they're authoritarian. So there's that. Um, and then there's, you know, the, the cult part of this, where recently there was a, a study came out that said that, you know, the core of Trump supporters, they believe him more than they believe their friends or family. And so I thought, oh, that's, I feel vindicated because there are times when I'll talk about Trump having a leader cult and people think I'm just, it's just way exaggerated. But that is the definition of cult devotion when you believe them more than people you used to trust. And that may shrink, although every time he has an indictment, uh, because he's got this victimhood script, he's able to be more popular. And the other part of the, the reason uh, he becomes more popular is that nobody else, none of the other candidates, not only they're not allowed to thrive, they were made, talk about authoritarian spectacle, during that very scandalous debate, uh, they were made to raise their hands on stage and pledge loyalty to him, even if he becomes a convicted criminal. It's like, where do you go with a party if you've reached that point where the other candidates have to take their own power away and debase themselves by saying, I'm running for office, but I'm going to be loyal to, you know, dare fewer Trump, even if he becomes a criminal. That's a party that is in crisis, you could say. I remember reading those those polling results. It wasn't just people trusting Trump more than their their aunts and uncles. It was immediate family members, their priests. Um, it was, I mean, as, as cultish as it gets. It makes me wonder, is liberalism, lowercase l, up to the task? I mean, one of the strengths of democracy, and you see this in the Democratic Party on the left, this cacophony of voices and, and opinions, is also an inherent weakness when confronting a, a movement that has, as you just observed, a unified message. How does liberalism fight back against that? Yeah, that's a problem, right? Because we it's not in the nature of and if we the Democratic Party, if we just reduce it to the Democratic Party now here, um, we we're not gonna it's not gonna have a unified message, nor are there uh, enforcers like Tucker Carlson. If you say the wrong thing about an issue, you're gonna be hauled up you know, on TV, like Tucker Carlson did to Ted Cruz, when Ted Cruz made the mistake of saying January 6th was a domestic terror event. And like the next day, Tucker had him on and totally humiliated him. And that was a, a lesson. So we're, so, you know, d Democrats don't do those things. And so it's very difficult to have your message spread effectively. So we're kind of disadvantaged. But we have, you know, we we have taken, of course, our not only our institutions and checks and balances for granted, but also we we need to we need to kind of take a lesson from actually authoritarians' very savvy use of emotion. Now, Trump, it's in in Trump's case, and also Erdogan in Turkey, it's fake. They just want to use and manipulate these people. But Trump tells 
his followers that he loves them. And he actually talks about emotion a lot. He always has. And so they bond to him and they feel hopeful and they feel like they're doing something together. So these are so, this is like he built a movement making people feel their destiny could be fused with his destiny. And, you know, liberals, it's not the kind of thing they do. They don't use like emotion in this way, but we need to kind of update all of that stuff. Also, the way that, like, if you think of, we're such an image-based culture and young voters, they're all on TikTok or they're, you know, on Instagram. And the right has, you know, also used images and graphic design often more effectively. So did the communists, the historic communists, very strong symbols. We have the Statue of Liberty, but we don't, we don't use the whole arsenal of things that we could to get people excited about democracy. And that's, that's what's lacking. And we really need that now. It's that appeal to emotion that, that, that Trump is so good at that makes me wonder how this ends. I, I'm sure you've seen the, the comment coming from the right that there's no way Biden could have gotten 70 million plus votes because he's never seen a Biden flag whereas Trump flags are everywhere. I think that's the difference between being in a cult and not being in a cult. But that type of emotional connection to a movement never ends well when it falls apart. No, and as we saw in January 6th, um, when the leader is in distress and there's uh, a risk of the whole thing falling apart or there's defeat, the followers, the most extremist, devoted ones, become very volatile because he's convinced them that, he, well, he said on January 6th, if we don't fight, we're not going to have a country anymore. It's like me or the abyss, me or the apocalypse. And so they get very agitated and volatile and they can be manipulated. So we could, you know, we, it's not pretty, um, the things that can happen in, even if, um, even if they're being defeated, the interim is difficult. Well, I want to end on a hopeful note. You have this line in your uh, Atlantic piece, we will get through this and our democracy will be strengthened as a result. I believe that as well. I don't see the exact path, but I know how invested my community is, my neighbors are, my my circle of friends are in in beating back this threat to our democracy. And I think we'll be stronger afterwards as a result of having gone through it we will and you know the positive story that we don't hear is the world is in the middle of a total renaissance of mass protest and we are we have the biggest in in history was first the women's march surpassed then three years later by black lives matter which involved up to 20 million people in america and it was multi-generational and multi-racial and then all the things happening in the state houses. Look at Tennessee. There's new alliances being born. There's a lot of stuff going on uh, in our country, just to stick with it, um, that people have been sensitized to the danger in a new way. And they're kind of waking up or, or have already been awake and are trying new methods. So it's not easy, but the path is there. And the more we can come together, and both for practical reasons, like cross cross mobilization, you know, 
like in the Women's March was successful because it was a hundred different organizations came together. We got to do that. But also feeling that you're not alone in this struggle uh, is, is really important. Well, let's end with that hopeful coda. Ruth, it's been great as always having you on. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolofman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.